an employee meets with their boss and it turns out there's a restructure and they've lost their job. A patient sits in their doctor's office and they're told that the cancer is back again. The treatment didn't work. A young couple, uh, excited to meet their new baby any day now, but at 37 weeks they find out there's no heartbeat. What do you do? Where do you turn when disaster strikes? There are countless stories like this in our world, in our lives, and every single one of them is a tragedy. They could be sudden, acute like these ones, or much more prolonged, when hardships carry on one after the other. These disasters and difficulties can make us say, I just don't know what to do, I don't know where to turn. Beyond this, there's workplace stress from being under-resourced. There's bullying at schools. There's chronic pain and chronic illness, poor mental health. There's financial stress, uncertainty. There's relational tension in marriages and families. All all these hardships, along with the busyness of week to week, can just be a, a pressure cooker, pushing us beyond the point of endurance. And not to mention the larger crises that are going on right now, the destruction of bushfires, the horrors of war. All this suffering and hardship is part of the broken world we live in now. And some of you might be in the thick of it right now. Or if not now, perhaps soon. Or if not you, perhaps someone you know. So the question is, what do we do? Where do we turn when we face these disasters, when people around us face these disasters, whether it's individual or or collective suffering? Well, God has something to say about and through these disasters that happen this side of heaven. The prophet Joel, he writes about a disaster that's really hit, seems to have hit the people of Judah, a great locust plague. It's just eaten all their food, suddenly, probably within days. They go from great stockpiles of crops and and food to to nothing. And it's followed by this drought resulting in this huge famine. One thing that's interesting about the prophet Joel is he doesn't really mention sin in these chapters. Unlike Hosea, which we've just come from, And it's not because Judah are innocent victims in this catastrophe. But Joel assumes we've read Hosea and read other prophets that say, no, Israel, you've turned away from God. You've turned away from the life giver. And so where do you have to go but destruction? We know that the brokenness in this world is a result of human sin in general. But Joel gives the people of Judah and gives us a challenge to respond, to respond to disaster in a way that brings God into the picture and and in a way that actually recognises our sin. Not necessarily that our sin leads to our individual suffering. No, but human sin 
leads to brokenness in this world that we all experience in different ways. And so rather than turning to to hopeless despair or, or even just gritting our teeth and getting through it, Joel urges us to turn to God in the midst of these things. So as you'll see in your outline, firstly, he urges them to lament, to mourn or cry out about this grief that's happening. And secondly, by, by trembling, by being alert to the day of the Lord that's coming. And thirdly, by returning or, or repenting, turning to God in complete reliance. Let, let's take a look together at Joel chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you, li- you who live in the land. Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children. So he calls everyone, everyone, listen to this. This is a message for you and the generations. There's been this devastating plague of locusts. Locusts have eaten and eaten and eaten. There's there's nothing left. We're facing a severe famine. And they're called to lament, just to cry about how horrible this is. He says in verse 5, he he, he says to the different people in the society, firstly, verse 5, the drunkards, wake up, you're sleeping through this disaster. Look, locusts with teeth like lions are just eating everything. They've destroyed both vine and fig tree. And then in verse 8 he says, mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Here Joel's calling, calling all of them to mourn, lament like a widowed fiancé before she's married. Just imagine high school sweethearts. The bride-to-be has bought her white wedding dress, but instead she puts on black to go to the funeral of her fiancé. Imagine the grief. This is what this situation is causing the people of Judah. Because then he calls other people. He calls the farmers and the vine growers to despair, verse 11, the priests and ministers to mourn, verse 13. Why? Because the whole land is dried up and there's nothing left. It's a desperate situation. There's no grain, no wine, no olive oil, verse 10. Verse 12, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the palm tree and apple tree, it's all dried up. Verse 17, storehouses empty, Granaries broken down. Verse 18, the cattle and the sheep are moaning, suffering, because they have nothing to eat. Judah are facing starvation. There's just no food. You might be reminded, as I was, of the drought a few years ago, 2019, when a whole bunch of New South Wales farmers had the choice. They either sell off their cattle or let them starve, or they have to buy in truckloads and truckloads of stock feed to feed them. Their paddocks, once green, have just turned to dust bowls. So in verse 11, Joel tells the farmers to despair, but they wouldn't need to be told twice, would they? And at the end of verse 12, it summarizes this all in in the emotional response of the people. Surely the people's joy is withered away, just like the plants in their fields. Two weeks ago, 
Dave put forward this thought experiment. I don't know if you remember. Imagine being cut off, deprived from relating with God, deprived from church, deprived from any sort of relationship with God. I don't, I don't want your dirty money, perhaps God was saying to Israel. And that idea is present here again at verse 13. The grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. This time, because there's nothing to give to God. They haven't got any grain or drink offerings. Yes, they, they're to mourn because they're facing starvation, but, but also because they have nothing to give to God. Their means of relating to God, that, that was the way they related to God in the Old Testament. It's been taken away. You know, we might sometimes see church as a duty, but the thought of being stripped away from that, being stripped of our means of relating together to God, it ought to devastate us. So, so consider, would, would you be more upset if your house fell down or if your church fell apart? Would you rather skip your Bible or your breakfast? What really matters to us? Relating with God or or simply receiving his material blessings. So here, Joel uses this disaster to redirect the hearts of Judah, but also our hearts, to call out to God in these times and to seek him more than the things that he gives us and more than even relief from our trouble. He calls us to seek God more than relief from our trouble. And so in verse 14, he summons everyone to come and cry out to God. And then he does it himself in verse 19. To you, Lord, I call. So this message, it's, it's not this message for the generations. It's not just about this locust plague that's happened or for us the, about the latest disaster in our lives, but it's about where we turn in those times. Joel urges us to turn to God. In 2019, during that big year of drought, I, I was on a college mission team and, and we went to Narrabri, which they were, they were suffering. And the pastor told us, the pastor of the Anglican church, who's kind of seen around the town as, you know, he's the man of God, he's got connections. Some of the townsfolk would ask him, hey, what are you doing about the drought? You know, partly in jest, but he took it quite seriously. He said... I'm praying every week. Can you come and join us? What are you doing about it? Because <laughs> he would run an open prayer meeting every week during that time, praying for rain. So where do we turn when disaster strikes? Joel says, turn to the Lord. Firstly, turn to him in lament, just mourning and crying out about how bad the situation is. But as we move into chapter 2, we see that it also ought to make us tremble because it's a warning about what is to come. So, so let's have a look at chapter 2, verse 1 now. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Sound the alarm. If you've ever been in this building while the alarm goes off... 
you don't want to stick around. You want to get out. It's, it's horribly loud. Judah needs this type of alarm, a trumpet so that people are alerted to the danger that's coming, that they tremble and take action at the coming day of the Lord. Because it will be terrible. Verse 2, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. And in this scene, it's very poetic poetic poetry, uh, poetic uh, prophecy here from Joel. This kind of like a nightmare sometimes turns from one scene to another. The image of locusts kind of morphs into this terrifying army here in chapter 2. Continuing in verse 2. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them a fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste, nothing escapes them. I don't know if you got that feeling of dread as Kaz read it out so expressively. This this army is fearsome. And, you know, Judah have seen fearsome armies before, but this one is beyond their experience, like never before and never will be again. Turning, sorry, fire before them and flame behind, turning a garden of Eden into a wasteland. Well, one of my children usually leaves a path of destruction behind him. You might be able to guess which one. Eden into a wasteland. You know, books were neatly on the shelves, strewn on the floor. Tall towers, carefully built with blocks, scattered on the floor. A delicious bowl of spaghetti bolognese tipped all over the floor. It's kind of funny when it's a toddler. But there's nothing amusing about this army. Garden of Eden before, destruction behind. Before them, verse 10, before them the earth shakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, the stars no longer shine. On this dark and dreadful day, even the heavens and earth, the sun, moon and stars, they tremble in fear. For who leads this army? The Lord himself. Verse 11, the Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number. And mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Who can endure it? Not you. Not me. No one on earth can endure this day of the Lord that is coming. There is no hope unless unless the Lord relents. The disaster in Judah's day, the disasters of our day, they point forward to an even greater disaster when the Lord himself will thunder against the wickedness of the world. Even though many disasters and hardships we face are not not because of our individual sin. You know, as, as Jesus said, when there was a tower in Jerusalem that fell on 18 people and killed them in his day. But what does Jesus say? He said, They were not guilty, more guilty than the rest of Jerusalem. No, but unless you repent, you too will perish. 
these disasters that we see in our day are warnings of the disaster to come. Because the brokenness in our world is, is a result of human sin in general, and, and we're all part of the problem. The day is coming when heaven and earth will shake, when the stars no longer shine. And so we must sound the alarm and tremble before that day, for no one can endure it. But there is hope. Come with me to the the third point, starting from verse 12. Rend your hearts and return, for the Lord is a God who relents. Verse 12 says, Even now, even now, when, when rescue seems impossible... Even now, God himself provides a way out to rend our hearts and return. So verse 12 says, Even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to me, the Lord says. Give yourself to me from the inside out. Return to me with all your heart and let the actions flow on from that. In the Old Testament times, tearing one's clothes was an expression of repentance. But God wants even more than an outward expression of repentance. He wants our, our hearts, our very hearts torn open before him. But as we saw before, the Lord thunders at the head of his army. What a terrifying picture. Do do we really want to expose our hearts to him, to be vulnerable before this terrifying God, this judge of evil? Well, Joel encourages us with the great creed of God's character from the Old Testament, how he revealed himself to Moses right, right back in Exodus. Continuing in verse 13, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent. Now, if you know the book of Jonah much, you might recall that this is almost exactly what the king of Nineveh says in Jonah chapter 3, and another of the book of the 12 minor prophets. He proclaimed a fast and said, Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Who knows? The question, it it humbly recognizes that God has the freedom to show mercy or not. He doesn't owe us anything. But we know that he does does relent. He does relent from sending the calamity that we deserve upon us if we are in Christ. Because Christ is the one who has already endured, the only one who is able to endure the day of the Lord, the judgment that God has poured out against evil. Jesus has already endured that, so we will not have to. And not only does God show that mercy, but he also leaves a blessing. This renewed, enriched relationship with him. Have a look at verse 14. That grain offerings and drink offerings are left behind for the Lord our God. 
that in coming to him, God does provide this means, this way of relating to him in his mercy. So in verse 15, Joel again says, blow the trumpet, but this time it's to declare a fast. Verse 16, everyone call out to God for mercy. Old people, young people, verse 17, newlyweds, priests, ministers, repent before God so that God's people would not be a byword among the nations and so that the nations around would not doubt God's strength to protect his people. So they wouldn't say, where is their God? Who's protecting them? Joel calls everyone to repent for our salvation and for God's glory. We here at DPC, we're committed to calling people to repent, to believe the good news and be saved for the glory of God and for their salvation. So, So as we farewell some dear brothers and sisters from this place, it is really sad to say goodbye. We'll see you later. But at the same time, we're so thankful for the ways they have been part of this mission that God is on through his people, calling people to turn to him. And we're so excited to send them out to New Zealand, to other parts of Sydney, to Yamba, to the Southern Highlands, because we want people to know the God who beckons all people, all nations, to come to him. Return to me with all your heart, he says. We want people to come to the Lord who is gracious, who who grants favour in complete freedom, the the Lord who is compassionate, who loves the people he's created like a a parent loves a child, the the Lord who is slow to anger. He doesn't have a short fuse like we often do, but he's patient with us in our failings. He's abounding in love, this covenant love that we saw so much through Hosea, like Hosea's love for Gomer that just kept going. God is faithfully committed even when we are unfaithful. And lastly, from, particularly from this passage, the Lord who relents from sending calamity. By grace in Christ, God relents from bringing on people the, the judgment that they deserve if only they would return to him and take refuge in the Lord Jesus. This is the God worth turning to when disaster strikes. The gracious and compassionate God who loves, who is slow to anger, who relents from sending calamity. Many of you will already know the story of Les Miserables, a story of grace, where the convict, Jean Valjean, he's released from prison, but no one will give him shelter because he's an ex-convict, except Muriel, the, the bishop of the town. Muriel kindly takes him in, but how does Jean Valjean repay him? He steals his silverware. And when the police arrest him, Muriel actually covers for him, saying he gave him the, the silverware as a gift. Muriel, he, he bears the cost. He doesn't send Valjean back to prison as he deserves. He relents from exacting justice on him as he rightfully could. 
he shows him grace. And how much more grace has God shown us in the Lord Jesus enduring that day of great judgment, that day of the Lord, so that we do not have to when he returns. You see, God uses disasters in our lives and and in the world to alert us and alert the world of humanity's need to repent, of our individual need to repent and to return to God day by day, trusting in him as the only way to escape judgment. And through this, he, he draws us closer to him and more in love with his gracious character. Let's pray.